0: All right, John chapter 10, I'm going to pick it up in verse 22. And then, uh, Lord willing, I'm going to go back and clean up a few things from uh, earlier in the chapter, and then we'll uh, pick it up from verse 22. So let's pick it up in verse 22 of John chapter 10. And it was at Jerusalem, the feast of the dedication, and it was winter. And Jesus walked in the temple in Solomon's porch. Then came the Jews round about him and said unto him, How long dost thou make us to doubt? If thou be the Christ, tell us plainly. Jesus answered them, I told you, and ye believed not. The works that I do in my Father's name, they bear witness of me. But ye believe not, because ye are not of my sheep, as I said unto you. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. And I give unto them eternal life, and they shall never perish, neither shall any pluck them out of my hand." My Father, which gave them me, is greater than all, and no man is able to pluck them out of my Father's hand. And, excuse me, I and the Father are one. Then the Jews took up stones again to stone him. Jesus answered them, Many good works have I showed you from my Father. For which of those works do ye stone me? The Jews answered him, saying, "For For a good work we stone thee not. But for blasphemy, and because that thou, being a man, makest thyself God. Jesus answered them, Is it not written in your law, I said, ye are gods? And if he called them gods, unto whom the word of God came, and the scripture cannot be broken, say ye of him whom the Father hath sanctified and sent unto the world, thou blasphemest, because I said, I am the Son of God. If I do not the works of my Father, believe me not. But if I do, though ye believe me not, believe the works, that ye may know and believe that the Father is in me and I in him. Therefore they sought again to take him, but he escaped out of their hand and went away again beyond Jordan into the place where John at first baptized, and there he abode. And many resorted unto him and said, John did no miracle, but all things that John spake of this man were true. And many believed on him there. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen. Our Heavenly Father, we pray thee now that you would open up your word unto us, that we might see the wondrous works of Christ. In his name we pray. Amen. Um, I'm always struggling, you notice, when I read... In general, but in particular, when I get down to this section here in verse 29, there are several words in italics there that have been added by the translators. Those words do not belong there, and it makes a significant difference when you read them without those words. Um, In verse 29 and verse 28, it says that no man shall pluck them out of my hand. That would be a bit exclusive if we were to think that the only individuals the Lord would be concerned about having us plucked out of his hand would be from other men. That's not true. There's nothing created in heaven and earth that can separate us from God. So that's why I I take that word out. It doesn't belong there. And it's significant um, that it should not be there because uh, our salvation, the security of our salvation is much broader than you might be led to believe if you included that word in there. Um, Having just said that, now I want to go back to uh, the first portion of John chapter 10 and talk about a few things that are written in there. Uh, But as a segue to it, I wanted to share with you um, something that pricked me last week when our sister was sharing with us her testimony, and it brought to mind something I had received a few days earlier. One of the brethren, uh, while staying in a hotel, had found a Gideon's Bible in his nightstand, which uh, used to be very common. Um, and he texted me a picture of it, and he said, look what I found, you know, in my nightstand. And so I responded back, oh, God wrote you a letter. And uh, then later that week, when our sister was sharing with us her testimony, she had mentioned that in part, as part of the process whereby God was calling her, somebody had sent her a Bible in the mail, <laughs> meaning she got a letter from God. And so one of the things we should think of the Bible as, it's a love letter from God to you and me. And nobody should think it a strange thing that he who spoke the heavens and earth into creation would give us a book explaining it, explaining his love for us, explaining all the things that are salient and important to us in our life. So it's a love letter, and it shares with us in particular about how he gave his only begotten son, his beloved son, for us because he loves us so much that that son, Jesus, died because of love taking upon himself our sins and bore them upon the cross and satisfied the wrath of God on our behalf. And the Lord intimates as much when he talks about how he lays down his life for the sheep, in the stead of the sheep. So the Lord did that willingly. He willingly uh, took our place and bore those sins upon himself. He bore the righteous, consequential, judicial wrath of God the Father. And so this letter declares the loving works of God and it bears careful reading so that we can appreciate that. Also, sometimes I think of the Bible as an instruction manual. You know, everything you buy these days comes with an instruction manual with the option to purchase an additional warranty. <laughs> no need to do that here. Of course, we have an eternally An eternal lifetime warranty. But again, we ought to read the instruction manual. It talks about God who created all things, all principalities and powers, things that are visible and invisible. He has shared with us how everything works. And so as a Christian, we don't walk in darkness, but we have an appreciation about how everything works and why everything works the way it does. How that ultimately, the author of the book, The Almighty who spoke everything into existence is the agency behind all global events. And everything that happens works for the good of certain people. Those that love God, those whom are the called according to his purpose. The sheep as defined in the Bible or the elect. Those terms are synonymous in John chapter 10 here. His sheep are synonymous with the elect. And so the most important thing we can glean from this instruction manual is the issue of eternal salvation. In 2 Timothy 3.15, he says very plainly about speaking um, of Timothy, that from a child thou hast known the holy scriptures, this is the important part, which are able to make thee wise unto salvation through faith which is in Christ Jesus. The Bible is replete with the gospel, and if you read it, if God impresses that truth upon your heart, it will make you wise unto salvation through faith which is in Christ Jesus. So it is a letter or it's an instruction manual that everyone should read. It contains information about salvation, important things that we should be understood about faith in Christ Jesus and the results thereof. Again, it contains about the Son upon which God poured out his wrath, due his love for the elect, for his sheep, and only for his sheep. So to be clear, salvation is through Christ Jesus. There is no other way. Jesus himself makes that very clear to us in John chapter 14 verse 6 when he says that I am the way, the truth and the life. No man cometh unto the Father but by me. There was only one way, there was only one truth, there was only one life and it's by the only begotten son of god which is jesus christ. and once we by faith apprehend that truth we grow in christ and in order our lives according to his instruction and his inward leading. second timothy goes on to say in verses uh, chapter 3 verses 16 and 17 that all scripture is given by inspiration of god and is profitable for doctrine for reproof for correction for instruction and in righteousness, that the man of God may be perfect, thoroughly furnished unto all good works. So it's a instruction manual that we need pay attention to because it's, it's intended to um, conform us into the image of Christ. And so without abusing this analogy as an instruction manual... Um, It is an instruction manual in the context of that it has things that we should do to be conformed to the image of God, how we should be corrected, instructed, and put back on the the proper way should we, as a wandering sheep, go astray. Um, So it's certainly for our edification uh, as a regenerated individual, as a regenerated man. Um, Now, it is for that individual that God's love is... um, is directed that is the object of god 's love is those that are his sheep that is the those are the individuals for whom Christ died, and as I said before, it has an eternally lifetime warranty the product that God is making a man in his image and his likeness has an eternal warranty so the reason i 'm sharing this with you is a way to coming into our uh, what I want to talk about next is this imagine yourself In the presence of Jesus, in John chapter 10 there, he says a lot of very important things. And if I was there, I would find that a lot of things would go in one ear and out the other. A lot of things would go right over my head. There's just a lot of things that I wouldn't understand. And so I'm so thankful that I have this book, that I can read it and I can meditate upon it, and I can read it again and again and again. And then uh, over time, as I have a more comprehensive understanding of the Bible and a more comprehensive understanding of who God is and who Christ is, more things become relevant to me, and there are things that I understand uh, better. So there are a lot of things to hear, and uh, how much can you absorb? Um, Last week, um, in the first part of John chapter 10, we learned a couple things about Jesus. We learned that the shepherd enters in by the door. I didn't have any trouble understanding that. shepherd ends by the door. Jesus says that he is the good shepherd. I didn't have any trouble understanding that. He's the good shepherd. Okay, I get it. I understand the analogy. Then he says that he is the door. Jesus is the door. I'm like, okay, he's the door. Now, as I said, if I'd heard this in his presence, this would have gone right over my head. But by God's grace, I have his Bible to read it again. In verse 10, excuse me, verse 9 of John chapter 10, in verse 9, he says, I am the door. By me, if any man enter in... He shall be saved and shall go in and out and find pastor. So here's my question. After reading this many times, I ask myself this. How does Jesus the shepherd enter in through Jesus the door? That seems kind of strange. How does Jesus the shepherd enter in through Jesus the door? And what is he and the sheep entering in to? Because it says they go in and out. Well, I think we should appreciate that based on some of the scriptures I've already quoted. No man cometh unto the Father but by me. They're going into the presence of God the Father. They're going into his heavenly presence. How do we do that? Through death, through the portal of death. So this is going to be intimated when the Lord's going to speak here when he uh, speaks of laying down his life. So Jesus enters in the same way his sheep do, through the portal of death. And this we read about in Hebrews Chapter 10, in Hebrews chapter 10, verses 19 and 20, it speaks about this. In the previous chapter of Hebrews, it talks about how the things on the earth uh, typify the heavenly things. And so in Hebrews chapter 10, verses 19 and 20, we read, having therefore, brethren, boldness to enter into the holiest by the blood of Jesus, we enter into the presence of God the Father and we have boldness to do so. And why do we do that? Or how do we have that boldness? He tells us. By the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way, which he hath consecrated for us. In other words, he's opened this way for us. He's gone through himself, through the veil, that is to say, his flesh. In the context of what is shared with us here, you know that the temple had a veil in it, and the priest went through the veil into the presence of God, which was in the, um, over the mercy seat, which he would sprinkle with blood. So the high priest would enter with blood as he went through the veil, into the presence of the Lord in the holiest of holies. So we should appreciate that Christ, as our high priest, did the same thing, entering in through the veil, that is to say, his flesh. So we enter into the presence of God, unto the throne of grace, by the blood of Jesus Christ. In Hebrews 4.16, speaking of this, it says, let us therefore come boldly unto the throne of grace, that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. And again, this we do through the blood of Christ, as did Christ, our shepherd himself, entered in through his own blood. As the high priest entered into the veil of the temple, into the holiest of holies, again, by blood, so too does Christ enter into the heavenly presence of God through the veil of his flesh, which he shed on the cross when he died for his sheep. Now, in verse 10, of uh, John chapter 10, it says, I am come that they, that would be his sheep, might have life and that they might have it more abundantly. I have come that they might have life and that they might have it more abundantly. So what does abundant life mean? Obviously, it doesn't mean material prosperity because we don't see that in Scripture. We see the beggar at the doorstep of the rich man Lazarus, the beggar, and and, uh, dogs lick his uh, sores. You see a few wealthy people in the Bible, but predominantly you don't. What the Bible does promise every Christian is persecution and tribulation. And um, but yet we are just our life is described as being more abundant. So what does that abundant life mean? Well, it means certainly in the context of everything we've been going through here, and particularly in John chapter eight, it means freedom from bondage, no longer in bondage to sin no longer in bondage to Satan, you're not in bondage to your own flesh, and you're not in bondage to the um, elements of this world. We have access to the Father. We can come before the throne of grace. As I was discussing with one of the brothers recently, imagine if you were the brother of the President of the United States. And I want you to think of that in the context of a good president, a benevolent and loving president. But nevertheless, I think you can appreciate that if you had access to him, you could exercise some influence, and he could address some of the problems that you face in this world. Well, we have access to the throne of grace where we might um, find grace and mercy to help in time of need. We can petition the Lord, and he hears our prayers. Um, that is a tremendous um, Um, advantage to have as a Christian. And we have that access to the Father forever. We walk in light and we do not walk in the darkness. We have an appreciation for why the world is the way it is. I think at least once, my wife says maybe three times, our sister last week quoted Ephesians chapter 6, that we're fighting against principalities and powers in heavenly places, that this war is not not a horizontal one, you know, in the context that we are warring against men, but it's, it's a uh, spiritual level removed from that. And so as Christians, we can appreciate the foolishness that we see in the world um, should be understood and comprehended and fought on a spiritual level. Um, I think all of us this week, uh, and certainly last weekend, I think when the fall of Afghanistan was uh, complete and uh, it was shared with us on the news media, that we had to be scratching our heads. How did that happen? How could we be surprised by that? And then, if you continue to watch some of the news programs throughout the week, I think we was we um, we understood that. Well, no, it wasn't an accident, and our uh, surveillance and intelligence uh, didn't fail us. We knew exactly what was happening. It was intentional. Now you ask yourself, why was it intentional? Well, again, fighting against principalities and powers in heavenly places. I don't know, but God knows. And it's going to work out for our good. But we as Christians know that it wasn't an accident, that it's intentional. Satan has evil purposes for us, but what he means for evil, God means for good. So we're not dismayed by the things that we see here. We understand that all of these things that we see here are the result of sin. All of the death, destruction, and global mayhem, the estrangement from God, that's all through sin. God cursed the world in Genesis chapter 3, and it's been downhill ever since. And we can appreciate that. We can appreciate that sin destroys relationships that we have in our family. It ruins health. It darkens minds. And it's the source of all the inner turmoil, emotional turmoil, that is suffered by men. But we, the Christian, can get on our knees and ask the Lord to relieve us from this internal anxiety that we should not feel as those in whom the Lord indwells. So these things should not trouble God's sheep. We know that they do when we don't get into the Word frequently enough and remind ourselves of these truths. We know that we do and can get caught up on these things, but the Lord says not to do that. He says to think about me, think about what I have done, think about where you're going, think about um, the cross, Um, think about our relationship. So we're we're to think about Christ. Think of all those things which are, you know, just right, true um, things of good report. Uh, things, if there be any virtue, you know, think on those things. That's where we are to take our minds. Scripture says in Romans chapter 12 that uh, as Christians, our minds have been renewed. We have a biblical world view, And we should never be fearful because our end is sure in Christ. We have been blessed with all spiritual blessings in heavenly places in Christ. And we should not be fearful. Now, um, If you're fearful, then there's a problem. You are either um, sorely stumbling or you are not being led by the true shepherd. You know, the Bible says that we should make our calling and election sure. It says, if you do these things, you shall never fail. It says in 2 Corinthians 13, 5, to examine ourselves whether or not ye be in the faith. Prove your own selves. Know ye not your own selves how that Christ Jesus In you, except ye be reprobate. So we should take stock every once in a while and make our calling and election sure, particularly so if you're fearful. If you're fearful, the Bible says, you're not going to glory. In Revelation 21, in the context of the Lord ushering in the new heavens and the new earth and the new and the new Jerusalem, um, he says in verse 7 of Revelation 21, He that overcometh, and all God's sheep do overcome, all God's sheep in Christ do overcome shall inherit all things, and I will be his God, and he shall be my son. And then in verse 8 is the warning. But the fearful, but the fearful and unbelieving and the abominable and murderers and whoremongers and sorcerers and idolaters and all liars shall have their part in the lake which burneth with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. So fearfulness is an, Uh, Outward manifestation of the inward lack of God's grace in your life. And it's not to be dismissed. This last year has been a dismay to me over the issue of COVID and now the Delta variant and how you have people afraid to go to church. That makes no sense to me in the light of Scripture. And I know I've harped on it and I know it's irritating to people. But that's the reality of it. People fled the churches because they were afraid. And I'm thinking, what little faith you have that God won't protect you from that. That's just amazing. I've read a number of um, scientific uh, papers, or actually a couple of them, about wearing masks. They say they don't work. The difference in diameter between a virus and the porosity of a mask is a thousandfold. A virus is a thousand times smaller than the hole in the mask that they want us to wear. It doesn't work. It increases your carbon dioxide intake. Some people are claustrophobic. It's psychologically harmful to uh, people, children in particular, when they cannot see your face. And I think it's a spiritual sign of people being muzzled. So there's just nothing good about it. But nevertheless, people put it on because they're afraid and they're not trusting in true science. Again, their minds have not been renewed. They're, They're going down this path of fear. So there's a warning in Scripture. The fearful will uh, not enter into glory. So that's something to pay attention to. So as I said earlier, they're not following the good shepherd. They are following what is referred to in the scripture as the idle shepherd. And that's Zechariah chapter 11, verses 16 and 17. Zechariah chapter 11, 16 and 17 speaks about the idle shepherd, which is the Antichrist. For he comes, as we read here in John 10.10, he comes as a thief to steal and to kill and to destroy. And God's sheep are told not to fear him, for they have life and have it more abundantly. So the Lord sets that before us right here in John chapter 10, 10, referring to Zechariah, which is the idle shepherd, which is the Antichrist. Now, having said that, I've introduced a few ideas that I'm going to bring up again here as we continue. So let's pick it up now in John chapter 10, verse 22 here, because the theme of the good shepherd carries right on through here into verse 22 and what follows here in terms of the things that the Lord says here. And it's consistent also that his sheep are the elect of God. So there's this, it's a parallel um, theme. They're going to pick up a new things in terms of doctrine, but there's a break in time here. Right now, it says in verse 22, and it was at Jerusalem at the feast of the dedication and it was winter, so break in time here. Right now, where we are, we are at. Um, we've gone from the Feast of Tabernacles, where Jesus declared Himself to be the Light of the World. You'll recall that's in the fall, and now we're here, and it's winter time. It's known as the Festival of Lights. They're calling it the Feast of De- Dedication here, and that comes from a Greek word, echinaya, which uh, means to make qualitatively new to make qualitatively new that's what is translated into feast of dedication it's also known as the festival of lights which we all know to be hanukkah they are celebrating what is called what we know to be hanukkah which we see our jewish neighbors do and this is a man made festival that's rooted in tradition it's not listed amongst the festivals of, of god that god has set up and ordained uh, back in the book of leviticus or in or in exodus Um, It's a man-made festival rooted in tradition, and it came about in about the year 164 B.C. after the ceremonial cleansing of the temple, which was um, desecrated by Antiochus Epiphanes. He was a Hellenistic uh, king that had come down and was oppressing Israel as he went down to uh, um, battle the Egyptians. Um, There was a Maccabean revolt, which was successful, and put off the oppression And Ezekiel chapter 43 speaks about cleansing and rededicating the temple, if I can use that language, um, which is a seven-day period. I'm going to read Ezekiel chapter 43, verses 26 and 27. In Ezekiel 43, it says, Seven days shall they purge the altar and purify it, and they shall consecrate themselves, speaking of the priest. And when these days are expired, it shall be that upon the eighth day, and so forward, the priests shall make your burnt offerings upon the altar and your peace offerings, and I will accept you, saith the Lord God. So after a, a period of um, the temple having been polluted, they went through this process to cleanse the temple. It's a seven-day process, and uh, where the uh, Hanukkah comes in is this, is after Antiochus Epiphanes had polluted the temple and they went in to cleanse it, They um, lit the lamps that are in there, uh, and uh, they had apparently only enough oil to last one day. However, the oil lasted eight days. And so they believe that to be a miracle, and as a result of that, they have instituted this festival. It's a miracle that they still believe to this day, and they still celebrate this day um, and call it Hanukkah. Now, why is that important? Because the light of the world is there, He's not in the temple. He's outside the temple on Solomon's porch there. And they are celebrating the miracle of the oil lamps, for which there is no biblical record. And they refuse to believe the testimony of the many miracles that Jesus has performed in the presence of the people. But they seem to be believing this one here. Now, they are utterly blind to the spiritual import that the cleansing of the polluted temple points to Christ who's standing outside of it, which he will clean the true temple through his blood on the cross. So I love the way God sets up these, these geographic and these situational um, conditions and circumstances by which we might see the gospel being played out before our our very eyes. So in 1 Corinthians chapter six nineteen, it says... What? Know ye not that your body is the temple of the Holy Ghost, which is in you, which ye have of God, and ye are not your own. So it speaks of us individually as the temple of God, as well of us collectively coming together as the temple of God, the holy temple. In Ephesians chapter 2, verse 21, it says, In whom all the building, in me in Christ, in whom all the building fitly framed together, groweth unto an holy temple in the Lord. So our bodies are the temple, and there should be no uh, question as we have polluted this temple of our bodies through our own sin. So here's Jesus at the uh, Feast of Dedication. He's the true light, he's the true temple, and he's the true source of cleansing cleansing that which was polluted by sin. And nobody figures it out. (laughs) Verse 24, they come round about him, and they're about ready to confront him again. And so they say in verse 24, how long dost thou make us to doubt? If thou be the Christ, tell us plainly. Tell us plainly. So they're claiming ignorance in spite of the fact that he is the fulfillment of Scripture. In Isaiah chapter 35 in verses 4 and 5, it says of he that will come, Isaiah 35 verse 4 and 5, it says, say to them that are of a fearful heart, be strong, Fear not. Behold, your God will come with vengeance, even God with a recompense. He will come and save you. Then the eyes of the blind shall be opened and the ears of the deaf shall be unstopped. Then shall the lame man leap as an heart and the tongue of the dumb sing. Those are all miracles that Jesus has done, indicating that he, in fact, is God. In Isaiah chapter 42, I won't read all of that, but the first several verses here speak of Christ. It speaks about he who has created heaven and stretched it out that spread forth the earth and that which cometh out of it. He that giveth breath unto the people and upon it and the spirit to them that walk therein. In other words, describing things that God has done and that Christ has done. And in verse 6, and as it continues through 7 and 8, it talks about that when he comes, he will, give, uh, he will be given as a covenant, which of course is Christ, um, for a light unto the Gentiles to open the blind eyes, to bring out the prisoners from the prison, and them that sit in darkness out of the prison house. These are the things that Christ is going to do when he comes. And which miracle are we just following uh, in our section in John chapter 10 here? The man he restored sight to. So again, Christ has told them he's the fulfillment of Scripture here. Now, interestingly enough, when the Lord is in uh, giving his first sermon in Luke chapter 4, in Luke chapter 4, what he does is he reads from Isaiah chapter 61. In Isaiah 61, this is what he reads. I'm reading from Isaiah 61. The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me, because the Lord hath anointed me to preach good tidings unto the meek, He hath sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and the opening of the prison to them that are bound, to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord. These are things that God has written in Isaiah 61. And in Luke chapter 4, the Lord says it very plainly. He gets up and he reads it. And then he, uh, in verse 20 of Luke chapter 4, it says, and he closed the book and he gave it again to the minister and sat down. And the eyes of all them that were in the synagogue were fastened upon him. He's got everybody's attention. And what does he say? Verse 21. This day is this scripture fulfilled in your ears. It's speaking of me. I'm standing right here. I just read it to you. It's fulfilled in your ears because I'm the Messiah. I'm the one whom it was speaking of. Now, they don't receive that sermon very well, and they take him to a brow of a hill and endeavor to throw him off of it, which they cannot do. But my point is they're claiming ignorance here in John chapter 10, and he, in fact, is fulfilling Scripture, which all points to him. He has already told them many times. In John chapter 8, verse 58, he says, Verily, verily, I say unto you, before Abraham was, I am. He's using the name that God gave Moses. He's using the name that refers to God. As a matter of fact, he used that term, I am, four times in the previous engagement when he was back speaking with them before. He's told them as plain as can be that he is God. Remember back in John chapter 5, verses 17 and 18, when he said that God was his own father? They knew exactly what he said because they picked up stones to throw at him because he was making himself equal with God. They knew exactly what he said. There is no excuse for their ignorance because they have understood what he has already said about himself, and he has proved it by his works. He changed water to wine. He has given uh, blind... Eyes, Those whose eyes were blind, he's given them sight. He's caused the lame to walk. He's done all of these things. He's done all of these wonderful miracles. He's raised other people from the dead. He's about to raise Lazarus from the dead. So he has told them, as plain as can be, that he, in fact, is, um, is the Christ. And so uh, they don't believe him. And verse 25, he says, I told you, and ye believe not the works that I do in my Father's name, they bear witness of me. The works bear witness of who he is by virtue of the fact that they could only be done by God. And they already acknowledged that with respect to the blind receiving their sight. They said that. No man can do this. No man has ever done this. Well, Christ has. That's because he's Christ. And here's another one of those subtleties when you read through it. You have to start connecting the dots because here he says, the works that I do in my Father's name. In other words, by my Father's authority. Then up in verse 32... He says, these are works. He says, many good works have I shown you from my Father. I'm doing works from my Father. Then down in verse 37, he says, if I do not the works of my Father, believe me not. In other words, if you don't have an apprehension on the Trinity and understand that he and the Father are one, which he's going to tell them here, then these would be, this would be a bit of a mystery to you. So he's, he's calling them his own works by his Father's authority, their works from the Father, and their works of the Father. Jesus is the visible revelation of the living God. Now, verse 26 here, he says something that is um, it's difficult to hear. But ye believe not, because ye are not of my sheep as I said unto you. They're not of his sheep. Remember that first fold he started speaking of? He says, I go into the fold lawfully, and his sheep follow him. There's other sheep that stay in that fold These are sheep that are going to stay in the fold of national Israel. They are not his sheep. They will never be his sheep. They do not believe. They do not hear him. They do not understand what he is saying. And here, of course, we have the doctrine of election. These are not of the elect. They will never be his sheep. They can never believe. They can never understand. They will never hear his voice. Satan, the idol shepherd, is their shepherd. Now, as Christians that are told to go into the world and to preach, we do not know who the elect are. I would never have thought that Saul of Tarsus was one of the elect. Preach the gospel anyway, and um, the Lord will work it out. In verse 27, again, he says that, ye, uh, "'My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me.'" These others, they do not hear it. He had said in John 8, 44, already, he's speaking of them. He says, "'Ye are of your father the devil.'" And then down further on in verse 47 of John 8, he says, He that is of God heareth God's words. Ye therefore hear them not, because ye are not of God. So there's no, um, there's no happy face to put on that. They are not of God. They are not his sheep. They are not the elect. They will not hear. They will not understand. And so he says his sheep do hear his voice. And he says, I know them. And they follow me. And as we've quoted Proverbs 20, uh, 12 before, he has made the hearing ear and the seeing eye. It, we can hear him and we can know who he is because he knows us and he gives us ears to hear him. We love him because he first loves us. As we go down to verse 28, he says, and I give unto them eternal life. Could it be said clearer that salvation is a gift? And it's from God. I give eternal life. It was a gift. It's not a recompense or reward for something that we have done. It is a gift. So very clearly he says there, and they shall never perish. Well, of course they'll never perish because they were given eternal life. That's what eternal life is. If you could perish, he wouldn't have given you eternal life. Um, As we did nothing to merit that gift, there's nothing that you could do. That you might not continue to warrant the gift, if I can use that language here. Remember in Romans chapter 8 and verse 38 and 39, he says, I am persuaded that neither death nor life nor angels nor principalities nor powers nor things present nor things to come nor height nor depth nor any other creature shall be able to separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Nothing, not even you or me, by the things that we do, can separate us from the love of God. So take everything that you read there, there's seven things, and plug that into where he says that no can pluck them out of my hands. None of those things will separate you from the love of God. Nothing can pluck you out of his hands. You are secure in his hands. Nothing, not Satan, not any principality and power in higher places. Not any angelic being, not any man, including you, can pluck out of Christ's hands. We are safe and we are secure in his hand. And then he says in verse 29, My father, which gave them me, so again, the father is certainly um, part of this gift as well, um, is greater than all. No blank is able to pluck them, meaning the sheep, out of my father's hands. So it can't be plucked out of Christ's hands, can't be plucked out of God's hands. So whose hands are we in? Well, we're in the Godhead's hands. He tells us in verse 30, I and the Father are one. The personal article for the is actually in there, and the commentators say that this gives it greater import. We're very clearly here speaking of the Heavenly Father. He and the Heavenly Father are are one. Recall back in John 5 where he referred to him as his heavenly father. So if you think there's some exclusivity, he has removed that objection by saying, I and the father are one. And the Jews receive that information. They've asked him to plainly say if he's the Christ. He's told them plainly he is. And they pick up stones to stone him again. So it's clear that they understood him. They understood exactly what he said. Verse 32, many good works have I showed you from my father... For which of those works do ye stone me? All of those works, and this is in a collective sense, everything he's done, everything that's been said about him, all testify that he is of God. So which of these things are you stoning me for? Verse 33, the Jews answered him, saying, For a good work we stone thee not, but for blasphemy, because that thou, being a man, makest thyself God. Well, he is a man, but he's also God. He's God manifest in flesh. So obviously They understood. Because they believe that he is uh, blaspheming. Now, in verses 34 through 36, he's going to make a reference to Psalm 82. And that's what we had our deacon read for us this morning. So let's take a look at that. In verse 34, it's Jesus answered them, Is it not written in your law, I said, ye are gods? If he called them gods, unto whom the word of God came, and the scripture cannot be broken... Say ye of him, that would be Jesus, whom the Father hath sanctified and sent into the world, thou blasphemest, because I said, I am the Son of God. Um, what is made reference to here, and how should we understand this? Well, if you, this term actually comes all the way back from Exodus chapter 23. And so I'm going to go to Exodus 23, and I'm going to read verse 8 there, because that's where this word and this term is introduced to us. It has to do with Judges. In Exodus 23, verse 8, it says, If the thief be not found, then the master of the house shall be brought unto the judges to see whether he have put his hand unto his neighbor's goods. And so without going into the circumstances, the point is the man is brought before the judges. And the word that is translated as judges there is the word Elohim, which we know is a plural form of the word of God. So over in verse 28 of the same chapter, it says, Thou shalt not revile the God's nor curse the ruler of thy people. In other words, thou shalt not revile the judges, nor curse the ruler of thy people. So the term that is Elohim is translated as judges. Sometimes it's translated as gods, which is how it's translated in Psalm 82. So in Psalm 82, what we come to appreciate is that judges are like gods. Those are the ones that are going to condemn somebody after hearing a case, condemn them to death. So they can be very much like gods. Now, interestingly enough, several years ago, we were attending a church before the previous election where Trump was elected president. And uh, the church showed a film where somebody came and was speaking at a larger church. And he was uh, telling people that whomever they vote for, you need to think about who that individual is going to appoint for judges. Because judges, he said, wield a great deal of power in our country and can set the course for the way things go. And I think we can appreciate that with respect to the Trump presidency in terms of the things that he tried to do were typically blocked by the judges. So judges do, in fact, wield a great deal of authority. And that's why they say, he says down here further, about how, in verse 5, they, meaning the judges, know not, neither will they understand. They walk on in darkness. All the foundations of the earth are out of course. In other words, the whole country can go off the rail because of the way judges conduct themselves. So Psalm 82 that the Lord is quoting from here, he's using language that he has just used for which they're uh, declaring him to speak blasphemy. And he's saying, well, if it's not blasphemous in Psalm 82, why are you charging me with blasphemy for saying something that's already written? This is what makes it particularly interesting. So I appreciate his logic, and he's shutting them up based on the logic. But what is Psalm 82 if not an indictment against the judges which those men are? He's telling them, among other things, that God judges the judges. And so those men are going to judge Christ, whom he has already said to them that the God judgeth no man, but have commanded all judgment unto me. Jesus himself is the judge, so he fits the, de- the definition of Elohim used back in Exodus, but the indictment is against the people that are speaking against him there in John chapter 10. So our Lord is obviously very, well, he's God. He's God. So he knows exactly what he's doing, and he set up the circumstances by which he can point out this contradiction and how he's really indicting them, those men, for not only their foolishness, but because they are not judging the people properly. He's letting the poor and the needy be taken advantage of in a court of law by people that are wealthy and might pay them bribes. So that's the way we should appreciate and understand that, that the Lord is bringing all of this to their attention. Picks it up again in verse 38, but if I do, though ye believe not me, in other words, if I'm guilty of blasphemy, believe the works that ye may know and believe that the Father is in me and I in him. So if you're not believing the things that I'm saying, believe the works. And now he's. this is going to be Um, the irony of this, if I can use that language, the irony of this is going to be set right before us here in the next few verses here. Um, Verse 38, Therefore they sought again to take him. In other words, not only do we not believe what you say, but we don't believe the works. But he escaped out of their hand and went away again beyond Jordan into the place where John at first baptized, and there he abode. He's removed himself. He's gone on the other side of the Jordan River. In verse 41, it says, And many resorted unto him. The sheep are coming to him. Many resorted unto him and said, John did no miracle, but all things that John spake of this man were true, and many believed on him there. Oh, John didn't do any miracles, but they believed what he said. Jesus does miracles, and they don't believe what he said. And they believe on Christ by virtue of what John, who didn't do any miracles, said. This, of course, helps us to appreciate the efficacy of simply preaching the gospel. Faith cometh by hearing, and hearing by the word of God. And so we, as his sheep, go out into the world, and we witness about Christ. We don't do any miracles, but yet people will believe based on the things that we share about Christ, things about we share about the Good Shepherd, because the Holy Ghost will work through us and them, and he will impress those truths upon their hearts. And so I will conclude with that, but I hope we can appreciate as we read through this here all of the foolishness that's set before us here in terms of um, they, them failing to believe the works, they failed to believe the things that Christ says, and as it says in the Scripture, they hated him without a cause. All he did was good works and ministered unto them and told them the truth, and yet they hated him. Um, and that's the reception that we should expect in this world. It says of him here that he was sanctified, meaning set apart Unto God, as we indeed, all of his sheep, are set apart. Unto him, the good shepherd, and we'll go out into the world and preach the gospel. Amen. Amen.